true. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous. I had been, and am. But why will you say that I am mad? HPPodcraft.com The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing, acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. The eye. It's always the damn eye looking at you, judging. You don't know me. You can't know my heart, how it bleeds, how it aches, knowing that love is a lie. Chris, we started recording. You understand that, right? Yes. At the top of the show, we heard the introduction to Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. Our reader, once again, is the powerful Greg Johnson, who loves this story in a deep and somewhat creepy way, which <laughs> I guess is really the only way to love it. It is the only way to love it. And as always, we're glad to have Greg on the show, although, and this doesn't have anything to do with Greg, who's awesome, but I realized on this reading that the narrator could just as well be female mm-hmm. as male. Mm-hmm. That's true. In the story, we don't know anything about the narrator. We don't know their age, their relationship to the old man, and we don't know the gender. It could very well be a woman, and I thought, oh no, well maybe we missed an opportunity here to present this in a different way. And I wondered, why have I always thought the narrator is male? Mm-hmm. I've read the story many, many times. And then I thought about it some more, and I, what I realized was going on is it's because of all the murder that I thought I was a male. Because, <laughs> you know, doing murders... I hate to say it, but it's kind of a guy thing. It is. You know, here I was worried that I was being sexist, and then I realized, oh, I am sexist. I'm just sexist against men. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you, if you tell me you're writing a character that murders, I'll say, what's his name? Yeah. You know, it's just an assumption I make. Yeah, a large, a large percentage of all murders are done by men. Yes. Wait, have you murdered anybody? No, no, no. I, it's, it's not a rite of passage. I don't think it's a requirement of being male. No, me neither. Of course, no. You haven't. How would I? No. You've never done that. No. no. Why would you ask that? I'm sorry. I just feel like, you know, it's, you know, that trope in books or movies when the main guy runs into a woman and says, excuse me, I'm here to meet Dr. Blake. And then she's all like, I'm Dr. Blake. And he arches the eyebrow. A woman doctor. I'm exactly like that guy, but for murderers. Okay. You're like, oh, you're a lady murderer. Yeah. As you say, I'm not wrong. I looked at it. A, a 2013 global study on homicide by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime found that males accounted for, brrr, I want to take a guess at the percentage of homicides done by males. Me? Take a guess. Yeah. Oh, 90%. 96% oh my of all God. homicide perpetrators worldwide. 96? 96% of all oh my murderers God. worldwide are men. 79% of the victims are also men. 
Oh. So there's a little more gender parity there. But I thought that would be different. I thought more, I thought it'd be more women. Yeah, for but sure. But I guess when you account for wars and, and that sort of thing. Ah, uh, yes. We can talk about these possibilities a little more as we go on. But I, I just wanted to say that the research supports Greg reading the story and also suggests that he's killed somebody. Yeah. So uh, what do we know about this story? Uh, this story, The Telltale Heart, was first published in 1843 in James Russell Lowell's The Pioneer and the January issue. This was the inaugural issue of the magazine, and Poe was likely paid about $10 for this story, which uh, doesn't quite seem right for producing a classic of this caliber, but that, that, yeah, was the, well. that was what he was paid. Originally, the story included an epigraph that quoted Longfellow's poem, A Psalm of Life. When the story was republished in the 1845 edition of the Broadway Journal, hmm. the epigraph was removed because Poe thought Longfellow probably plagiarized it. What? Uh, yeah. Well, Poe was wow. always going after Longfellow for this. Actually, in that year, this was called the Longfellow War. Oh, because in public, uh, <laughs> yes. he was writing a lot of criticism saying, not necessarily that Longfellow was a word-for-word imitator, but that he would use the ideas of other poets, use specific constructions of theirs and themes, and then he would write his stuff and not even give them credit. And that drove oh. Poe crazy because Poe was such a stickler for originality in all things. By the way, I think Poe actually lifted some ideas along the way as well, but he wouldn't want you to know that. So the epigraph <laughs> was ditched. The story was published again and again during Poe's lifetime and after. And I, I think I read it for the first time when I was in junior high. I think they were teaching it folk to kids that young. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember doing that. This might be Poe's most famous story, arguably. I believe even Lisa Simpson made a telltale heart diorama for school and suffered from the same guilt as a protagonist. Yes, that is an excellent episode. Although Lisa, she made a fake one. She didn't make the real one, if you remember. It, the whole thing was... No, I don't remember. She made an Oliver Twist diorama that she accidentally destroyed. It was kind of flimsy. Oh. And of course, it, it was the guy, it was Bart, that goes, hey, we got to commit a crime to cover this up. And she reluctantly went along with him mm. because her, her rival, Allison, had made a telltale heart diorama. Right. They stole her diorama and hid it under the floorboards and then replaced it with a diorama that I think just had a cow's heart in it. Like that was her whole presentation. <laughs> just pretty messed up if you think about yeah. it. Lisa was so guilty about it, she could actually hear the, the real diorama beating under the floorboards. And that's what eventually got her to confess. I feel like I just spoiled everything in this story and in the Simpsons episode. I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. How dare you spoil 20-year-old <laughs> television shows and 150-year-old <laughs> stories? I'm a horrible guy. Yeah. Why don't we just get into the story so I don't do that anymore? So at the top, we have the narrator saying that they're not sure why they took the old man's life. He did nothing wrong and they didn't want what he had, but it was his eye, this milky blue eye of his, uh, like that of a vulture that chilled this person to the bone. And there's something else here in the opening that also suggests a male to me, and it threads throughout the story, and that's boasting. Right out of the gate, the narrator admits to being nervous, yeah. but as a result, he or she gains improved senses, just as Hot Frog's disability led to an increased upper body strength. Mm -hmm. For some reason, this nervousness leads to heightened uh, vision and hearing. Mm -hmm. It says, above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. The narrator's kind of boasting about this, trying to impress the listener. And this boasting follows along these lines throughout the story. Mm. The narrator is never denying the murder no. or, or trying to say that they didn't do it. They're just denying that they're insane. 
bragging about their murdering skills. Yeah. Which, again, kind of sounds like a guy thing to me. I feel like if it was a female character, she would just be great at murdering but not want to be making too big of a deal out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know. A modestly skilled murderer. But that's, you know, that's, again, those are gender stereotypes. That's true. I'm making an assumption. And this person could be breaking those stereotypes. Yes, and it's also probably an insane person, which certainly can break down along any gender Of course. But once again, as in the cast of Amontillado, we are made a character in this story. The narrator is taking an attitude toward us right at the beginning. He or she wants to impress upon us that despite some nervousness, there's no madness. Right. And I'm wondering, who do you think we are? I mean, what do you imagine the situation to be when we're hearing this? Initially, I was a investigator or a doctor, uh-huh. a psychologist of some kind. Right. Well, that would be a little anachronistic, maybe, if you were a, th- a therapist or psychologist. Sure. I I, an alienist. An alienist, yeah. Still too early for that. I was thinking more along the lines of, like, you're a roommate in the jail cell. You know, waiting for death row or, or, you know, it's an investigation after the fact once you've been arrested. But the funny thing is you can kind of come up with a million different contexts. What if you were just sitting on a train and the person next to you started telling you this nonsense, you know, (laughs) it works in almost any context. But it definitely makes you feel a little uneasy because did you ask for this unburdening to happen? Mm, And what did you just say? Because the opening word of the story is true. Oh, yeah. That's just the opening word. True. And I think that that's a brilliant way to unveil the unreliable narrator. The very first thing that he or she is trying to convince you of is the veracity of this tale, which makes you go, "Mm, I'm not. You're trying a little too hard. Yeah, exactly. Now, this lack of motive that's introduced at the beginning after this boasting, you mentioned it Mm -hmm. just a second ago, that, you know, object, there was none, passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He'd never wronged me, never gave an insult, don't want his gold. It's his eye that's driving me crazy. What do you make of that? I think it has something to do with just an obsession of um, insane mind. Mm -hmm. For just some reason, it bothered him. It was something that was off and weird and strange, and he couldn't just let it go. And it just sort of kept bothering him like a a string on a sweater that's... Right. They can't let it just lie mm-hmm. you know that it's they have to do something about it to this extreme level i mean well his behavior later on uh, just the next part of the story doesn't make any sense like why is he doing this stuff like it just seems like somebody that is so far gone yeah that i can't even really relate to sure their motivation well that's the interesting i mean i think that that's you know in hop frog there was a motive that was very clear and yeah. one might say even justified in cask of amontillado there was a motive, but we just didn't get to know what it was. Right. So he said there was an insult. We just never heard what it is. And then here, yeah. no motive. And the narrator is clear there's no motive. Yeah. Says it right out of the gate. And maybe that is why this is a chilling part of the story. And it's something that's really unique about it that sets it apart. We don't find that kind of thing in a lot mm-hmm. of fiction. I, I was thinking maybe The Dark Knight. That's the reason that the character, the Joker, worked so well in that movie. Because he has no motive. We're not sure why he's doing the things that he's doing. Right. He's just doing it because he's insane and wants to cause trouble. Yeah. That is not something that we ever want to hear, you know, because no. it, it's sort of the reason that conspiracy theories come to light after giant accidents have happened, because we want to bring reasoning to things. We want there to be patterns Yeah, it, when it is just because of insanity. That's very troubling. But I think also the fact that it's not there allows us to maybe invest some ideas of what it might be, mm. which is an interesting place to put the reader. It's odd that the eye is bothering, but I think it's pretty clear the eye is blind. Yeah. So... It's just probably staring at this person all the time without seeing him or her. I was trying to think, you know, obviously I think there might be a symbolic component to that. Is the eye a symbol of power? Hmm. This person is in some ways beholden to the old man. So does that eye represent, in the case if this killer is a woman, is it all of the patriarchy that that eye represents, you know? 
<laughs> is it something that wants that it, it, it symbolizes a power that this person has over them and they want to tear it down without necessarily knowing that's what it is? Yeah. Or is there a commonplace way to look at it? Is this somebody who's a caregiver who just day in and day out is dealing with this person? Yeah. And as you say, gets obsessed with that one little thing. That's what it felt like to me that this person was a servant of some kind or the old man was infirmed and they were taking care of him. Right. Uh, possibly even this might be the old man's son. Yeah, it could be a son or a daughter. And of course, we're tempted to find those rational causes. But the insistence in the narrative that the person is sane pretty much makes it clear to us that they are insane. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but that's all of that is just in the first two paragraphs. Yeah. Which is why this is such a great story. Such and great and story. then it's the uh, boasting. After that, we get into the boasting of how the narrator was able to get this murder all done. They say that they were very kind to the old man the week before the murder, but... Every night that week, the narrator would poke their head into the room very, very, very slowly. And they ask, well, could a madman be that deliberate and that careful? And of course, you're thinking, yes, of course, all madmen are that careful and deliberate, like Hannibal Lecter and Dexter, Michael Myers, Don Draper, all of them. Don Draper. <laughs> Don Draper is a sociopath, though. I mean, he well, kind of fits in with those guys pretty well. Exactly. There, there's an absurdity to it that I think is purposely humorous as well. Yeah. This person is meant to look ridiculous. Like, I, I was thinking of something similar. It's a scene in the new Avengers movie in uh, in Infinity War mm -hmm. where Drax is talking about how he moves so slowly that it's imperceptible. <laughs> and he's like eating a potato chip or whatever. And they're like, we're looking at you right now. We can see what you're doing. And he's like, no, no you can't. It's so slow. <laughs> you can't even notice it. And it plays for laughs. I remember that getting one of the biggest laughs in the movie. Yeah. That's essentially what's going on right here. He's going, look, yeah. I can move so slow. It's amazing. And it also assumes that there would be any reason to do this. Yeah. You've got a half-blind old man in that bed in the dark. Just go in and hit him on the head and you're done. This whole creeping through really slowly as if you're not really there thing is totally nuts. Yeah. But he, but the way that the narrator says, isn't it genius how well I'm able to do this and makes it so clear that I'm not insane? Yes, sure. This, I mean, this is what totally freaks me out. It's the narrator would move in very, very slowly and then he would open up the, the lantern just a sliver so that a, like a little beam of light would shine on his creepy eye, but it yeah. was closed. Yeah. Why? Why would he do this? It's so creepy. Like, I can't figure out any motivation for doing something like this. Like, Because he goes, does he need to know that the eye is closed? Is that I, kind of his, like, obsession? Yeah, it seems like the murder's not going to happen until the eye is open. There needs to be that final seeing it that, that will drive the passion necessary to commit the act. So it's almost, it reminds me of... There's oh, and I think we've talked about it before and I never remember who it is, but I don't care anyway because why name these people? But there was that serial killer oh, right. who would go door to door and test doorknobs. And if you left the door unlocked, he'd come in and do it and murder you. Yeah. Because in his mind, well, you invited him in. Right. The only thing that's sparing this old man each of these nights is the fact that that eye is closed. Woe to him the night that it's open. Like, I'm wondering if his motivation is even that he's going to, even if he's decided to kill him yet at this point, or if this is just some weird behavior of his to go in and look to make sure the eye's closed. There's a little bit of toying with your food too, right? You know, I, I think that he has made up his mind, or the narrator has made up their mind that they're going to kill this man. And then they're doing this creeping every night as a little bit of savoring that decision. Oh. Savoring the fact that you're able to get access to the room, be in the actual physical space with the man. He doesn't know it. And then what do you do the next morning? 
Oh, yeah, he comes in all cheery and greets them all happily. And yeah, so obviously that he either is a servant or he is a family member because he lives with this guy and he comes in his room and he, they're able to talk to him. It's the feeling of power over the victim. They don't know that I'm going to kill them. They don't know I've been in the room. Yeah, but I don't know because it seems like because he doesn't dislike the old man. He loves the old man. Mm-hmm. To me, it feels like he has some weird obsessive behavior that he's got to go in and check that the eye is closed in, in the middle of the night. And that when it finally is open, that's when the murder happens. Like, it just sets him off. Right. No, definitely there's all, also that. I mean, the text that says, I loved the old man. You're totally right. And it's it's just that eye. So unless the eye is present, he doesn't want to do the injury. There's that yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. It's just so bizarre. And because it's so bizarre, it's very disturbing. <laughs> On the eighth night, the night of the murder, the narrator creeps into the room, moving very, very slowly yet again. This time, the old man stirs a bit, but the room is pitch black so he can see nothing. There's an interesting parenthetical here that I think is so important, though. It says his room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, in parentheses, for the shutters were close fastened through fear of robbers very small thing but it demonstrates something that i think is real Mm -hmm. we fear the outside world but the worst crimes are most often committed by the people we know who are already in our lives and who already have access to us yeah and that really drives it home because we see in that moment that the old man isn't just some doddering oblivious person Mm -hmm. the old man's aware of the valuables in the house the old man's aware that there are bad people out there The old man sleeps in this pitch black room because he doesn't want robbers to come in and get him. Right. So he's a paranoid person. Yet this character is so in his confidence that he can creep into the room every night without the old man suspecting. That that Mm -hmm. lends so so much reality to it in terms of how crime actually works in the the real world. So when the narrator goes to open the lantern, his thumb slips and the old man sits up and cries out, who's there? But the narrator, he kind of boasts again in his storytelling that, I, you know, think I would run away or I would say something, but I didn't. I just stayed there still and I waited. And for an hour, the narrator waits like this, totally still, knowing the old man is just sitting there as well, listening in what must feel like supernatural fear because he doesn't see anything. They say that they know the feeling of terror at night when you think you hear something or just that something feels wrong. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, it is nothing but the wind in the chimney, it is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. Man, I have felt that often. Just something seems off when you're in bed at night and you try and force yourself back to sleep, but something's caused that adrenaline rush in your body where you've heard a noise or there's a creak downstairs or there's some little thing and you just can't shut off that noise. 
Right. I, for me, I even have to just get up and go downstairs and look around to make sure that there's nobody in the house. It never obviously has been. And I could have been dreaming if I think I hear, heard something or it's just an old house and it settles. Sure, but also, I mean, surely at some point in your life, in the dark, you've known someone was there even though you couldn't see or hear them, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Which goes back to heightened senses. In the absence of sight or sound, we all experience feelings that we might not be able to explain, these kind of mm-hmm. tertiary senses that we have that aren't things that we rely upon. So when they're perked up, it gives us a feeling of the weird, you know? We we don't, yeah. we can't confirm them with our other senses. And I think that's such an interesting theme in here because our protagonist is in a situation where that's happening to him or her all the time. Yes. Those, those heightened senses. Somehow they've plunged into such an abyss that everything's awake and aware. And we see them turn the victim into that. We see them visit that situation upon the victim in this scene as well. Mm-hmm. Now he's sitting up listening and hearing hell. Yeah, And so I think it's a really interesting connection between the two at this moment. Uh, so the narrator waits until they can hear the old man lie down and then slowly, slowly they open the lantern and this time the old man's eye is open. A simple dim ray like the thread of the spider shot out from the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. Great imagery. Obviously our narrator yeah. is the spider in this situation. Mm-hmm. The old man is clearly blind in the side, says a hideous veil over it chilled the very marrow in my bones. So, you know, I think you're right. He had to see that eye. Mm-hmm. He or she had to see that eye to go crazy, which is about to happen, right? The narrator says that they're not mad, but they're suffering from an over-acuteness of the sense. And this, I think, is a clue to the identity of the narrator. It's Matt Murdock. <laughs> It's Daredevil. It's hard not to think of Daredevil whenever this happens to somebody. <laughs> but the narrator says that they can hear a low, dull, quick sound such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once. Once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. The narrator says, I know I sound mad, but would a crazy person take such wise precautions? They take the old man's body and then they cut off the head and the arms and the legs. The narrator then lifts the floorboards in the old man's room and perfectly puts them back and not a drop of blood was spilt since they did all of the chopping up in (laughs) the bathtub. Which is all said pretty matter-of-factly. Yeah. Yes, you are crazy if you were able to just do that. (laughs) I would have a real hard time chopping up a human body. Yeah. I just It would be a very difficult thing for me to do. Mm -hmm. It definitely makes you sound crazy. And here we transition into the perfect crime genre, I think. 
Hmm. If you look at this externally. Oh, right. And I think this might, maybe this is the invention of that genre right now, but it's that thematic idea. Can somebody pull off the perfect crime? Yeah. Or even if all of the elements are in place, will the pride or the guilt attendant on committing any crime be enough to take them down? Right. We see numerous things where that's explored, whether it's a heist or a murder or oh, sure. you know, no matter what it is, changing of an identity. We find that usually it isn't an error in the planning, but something that's flawed in the perpetrator Yes, that ends up being the downfall. So by the time they're done, it's four in the morning and it's still quite dark outside. There's a knock at the door and it's the cops. Seems someone heard the scream and then... They're there to investigate. Which made me think, thank God we live in the modern world. Because think about the response time here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in terms of these police showing up. Because we know he's been going into that room with the lantern around midnight. Yeah. So we can presume that he murdered this man around 1215, 1230. Yeah, Maybe it was one o'clock because he stayed there for a long time staring at him. Whatever it is. Even if it was 2 a.m., he still had time to take the body, dismember it, clean yeah. up, put mm-hmm. it under the floorboards, get everything situated. And yep. then the police showed up. So that means when the neighbor called the police, we'll get around to it in a couple hours, you know. <laughs> oh, no. There's no 911 to call, no. you know. You just got to um, hope. That's pretty pretty awesome. The narrator isn't frightened because they took care of everything so perfectly. No one would suspect that anything was amiss. And again, it's that perfect crime idea of pride goeth before a fall. Lots of folks assume that the story is about the protagonist's guilt, and there's solid reasoning why that might be. But... I think there's also an element of the of it that's pride. Hmm. We can get to that. But it says, In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. Mm-hmm. So just like I was talking about rope uh, on the other show, yeah. it's the same thing. We kill the guy, put him in the chest, and then serve dinner over it. That's the perfect crime genre. It's only perfect if I just do it right in front of everybody and still get away. I mean, that's it's beyond perfect. It's this whole, like you said, it's a, it's a pride. It's an ego thing. Like, I'm going right. to rub it in their faces and they're not going to even know it. But then, of course, the person who has the audacity or the drive to do such a thing probably also craves recognition in a way that they themselves don't understand, right? Yeah. So this is always the downfall because the whole idea is if it's the perfect crime, you get away with it. And nobody ever knows you did it. Well, mm-hmm. if nobody ever knows you did it, then how can they appreciate the fact that it was a perfect crime? Right. <laughs> right? Exactly. So the police don't seem suspicious since the narrator is at such ease. They stay and talk for a bit, but then the narrator starts to feel a bit anxious. And then they hear a ringing in their ear as the police talked about mundane things. And the ringing noise becomes more distinct as the narrator realizes that the sound is not in their head. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, But the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men. But the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? 
I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards. But the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, louder, louder. And still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God! No, no, they heard. They suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This, I thought, and this, I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark! Louder, 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 louder! Villains! I shrieked. Dissemble no more! I admit the deed! Tear up the planks! Here, here! It is the beating of his hideous heart! And that is the end of the story. Something curious about this, I know we have an unreliable narrator, Uh but I think the way the police are acting is a little unreliable as well, obviously, because it's coming through his perception. But he lifts the chair that he's sitting on and smashes it on the boards underneath him, and still they're smiling and chatting pleasantly. Yeah. Something like that's happened. (laughs) Which makes me wonder, are they being nice because from the top they knew that he was a nutcase, right? So they're being like, yeah, "Yeah, sure. You know, they're doing that thing to kind of calm him down. Or are they even there? Is this something that's even happening? I thought maybe that his behavior wasn't as extreme as he was making it out to be as in like he was you know maybe he got up and had the chair on the floor and was kind of slowly moving it around or doing Mm. something to him he's being obvious about his behavior but to the police they think nothing's wrong so they're not paying attention to whatever it is that he's doing i mean obviously he hears the heart beating through the the floor so (laughs) he is an unreliable narrator right but yeah it could be that it could just be that they do know and they're just humoring him or it's possible that his extreme behavior really isn't that extreme and it's very subtle. Yeah, it's all internal. Yes, exactly. Because obviously they can't hear the heart beating either. And it could be his own heart. Yeah. We don't know what the heart is. Obviously, I don't think it's the dead man's heart that he can hear. <laughs> there is a clue that's in here that I never realized before until I was doing some research on it. Mm. Earlier in the story, it says he was still sitting up in bed listening, just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Now, this is an admission that he's hearing what possibly could be death watch beetles which are wood-boring beetles mm-hmm. that they create a tapping or ticking sound that can be heard in the rafters of old buildings on quiet summer nights. Mm. They are therefore associated with quiet, sleepless nights and are named for the vigil, or death watch, Ooh. kept beside the dying or dead. And by extension, the superstitious have seen the death watch beetle as an omen of impending death. Uh. Um, it says one variety of death watch beetle wraps its head against surfaces, presumably as part of a mating ritual, while others emit ticking sounds. Henry David Thoreau observed in an 1838 article that death watch beetles make sounds similar to a heartbeat just a few years prior to this story. So it's a tiny little clue that's embedded in there. It might be something else that he's hearing entirely. Oh, all right. You know, there's a lot in this story, too, about the narrator being sensitive mm-hmm. and having this perception that allows them to sense things that normal people can't sense that gives them an insight that people don't have yeah but in fall of the house of usher roderick usher also was sensitive right yeah. but he said that his sensitivity made him not quite sane right it made him insane and he realized that it was making him insane uh-huh. whereas this narrator claims that his insight is making his mind crystal clear and he sees things better than ever before, (laughs) then he's totally sane. 
Yeah. It's interesting how that same idea kind of gets twisted by Poe and these two different stories. Absolutely, right. Well, I think Poe's telling us that this narrator is insane by having him protest too much, whereas the character of Roderick Usher was a little more self-aware yeah. and realized yeah. that it was giving him the case of the crazies. But yeah, he definitely uses it in a couple of stories. It's interesting to speculate on, is that really happening or is it not? Is it right. Is it Daredevil? So, <laughs> so, does, uh, so does Lovecraft. I mean, Lovecraft, has, a lot of his characters are, are sensitive and they're privy to these things. And right. the, all, all of Call of Cthulhu was about the people that are sensitive and have a, a real perception of things beyond the mundane. But in Lovecraft stories, obviously, there there is the element of the supernatural and those people really were perceiving things. And it was what yeah. they perceived that would drive them insane. Right. As opposed to these stories, or this story, there's no implication of any supernatural, but there was a bit in Fall of the House of Usher. Yeah, yeah, an implication, at least. Yeah. Here also, there's no proof that his senses are sharpened. No. The only thing that he hears that other people should be able to hear is probably not even really there. Right. I was thinking about this motive thing as well. The truth is, Poe writing the story, he could have kept the motive totally crazy while giving us some character details. He could have said, this is a maid, this is a son, mm-hmm. this is a servant, and still left the motivation up in the air. Why is he keeping the entire character, the entire living situation, the time period, why is everything kept ambiguous? And I think uh-huh. it's because maybe he wants you as the reader to dig into your dirty heart yes. and think of somebody you want to murder for no reason. Oh, whoa. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of it that way. (laughs) No? No. I I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a question that he's asking is, have you ever felt a completely unreasonable motivation to hurt somebody Uh, based on... It could be. ...the way they looked or the way they said a phrase. Yeah, sure. You know, the way they're talking on their phone, you know, (laughs) whatever. It's an unjust urge to destroy. And maybe we all have that sometimes. Well, my take on it, and where I thought you were going with it was that uh-huh. by keeping it ambiguous, that could be somebody in your life that's thinking those things about you. Sure. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Once again, you identify with the victim. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> no, you're totally right. Yeah. Is there one little uh, out of place hair I have or something that's slowly driving my wife crazy right. or something? Or just <laughs> yeah. that somebody's going to kill you and they have absolutely no motivation to do so. You know, like they mm-hmm. somebody that loves you, somebody that doesn't want your money doesn't want anything that you have yeah really actually genuinely likes you and yet they're gonna kill you which is a horrific idea and makes the story really really scary absolutely well certainly when you're talking about the character the victim here being an old man if this is a caretaker i think that there's that thing where you go i love this person i don't wish them any ill but they've gotten to a point of infirmity where they're a burden and they don't contribute anything. And I wish this would be over. Yes. And that's an unfortunate feeling. And it's one that people probably don't want to talk about. Uh-huh. But it's definitely something that people deal with when they have elderly relatives that they have to take yeah. care of. And so I think it gets to that kind of awful thing within all of us sometimes where if something's not expedient yeah. anymore, we don't want it there. So maybe we'll come up with a reason for getting rid of it. You know, that's definitely in here. Possibly. Definitely. Yeah. There's. Again, it's Poe, and it's so layered, and there's so much going on, and there's so much to talk about and think about, and it's just liquid gold, man. It is liquid gold. (laughs) You know what else is liquid gold? The group of folks who are part of our team on the show and support us on Patreon, and I'd like to say a few of their names out loud for you right now. Do it! I'm going to thank them as well as I do it. Thank you, Tara Gardner. Thank you, Band Library. Thank you, Shandolin Bennett. Thank you, Carissa Yardis. Thanks, Thomas Feely. Anthony Brown. John Glacken, thank you. Thank you, Chris Pallas. Sam Kruger. And of course, Jeffrey Hall, thank you. 
<laughs> of course. Thank you, Jeffrey Hall. <laughs> Folks, thanks so much. I hope you're enjoying Povember. Uh, we're going to be back next week with The Premature Burial. Yes. Which I don't believe has much to do with revenge or motive or anything like that. It has more to do with the simple fear of being buried alive, which... I'm a claustrophobe, so Ugh. I don't even want to read that. Oh, one. boy. Our reader today, Greg Johnson. Yeah, Greg knocked it under the park. If you want to hear more of Greg and see his beautiful face as well, you can go on over to his YouTube page. That's Greg, G-R-E-I-G, Johnson. Just do a search there. You'll find a bunch of awesome comedy sketches and a few things I'm in with him as well. That's right. It's great stuff. Thanks, Greg, once again for doing an awesome job reading the story. For now, that's all we've got. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com hppodcraft.com